Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 123, The Unusual Usurper. For the first seven years of his reign, the unusual usurper, Romanus Lacapinus, had to deal almost constantly with the Bulgars. Simeon was still fuming that his clever plans hadn't worked, and was out for revenge. He still thought he may be able to become emperor if he tried hard enough. He vowed that he would pull down the walls of Constantinople if he had to. He kept attacking, even managing to persuade the Fatimad Caliph of North Africa to help, but he never managed to get even close to taking the city. In 924, after his tenth invasion, Simeon changed his tactics. He was weary of all this invading and getting nowhere, and decided it was becoming a bit boring. Instead of trying to pull down the walls, he asked if he could speak to his old friend Patriarch Nicholas. When the Patriarch arrived though, Simeon was angry and menacing. He glowered at the churchman and told him he would only speak to the Emperor. Romanus agreed, and the two men met. Again, just like previous imperial meetings with Bulgar kings, one of them arrived by sea and the other by land. This time there was no plot and no treachery. Romanus had come to negotiate properly. The Emperor knew he was in a weak position. There was an army outside his capital city, which had already ravaged the Thracian countryside and could do a lot more damage. But Romanus was clever and brave, and instead of begging for peace and offering loads of gold, he made a grand speech. He appealed to Simeon as a Christian. I hear you are a good man and a Christian, he said, but I see you are doing things which don't seem to be too Christian. He then asked Simeon what God would think of the Bulgars attacking their fellow Christians. Today you are alive, but tomorrow you may be dead. How are you going to explain all this to God then, eh? Cleverly, the Emperor then hinted, without actually saying it, that there may be cash on its way if the Bulgars went home. It worked. Simeon realised he was being offered gold for going home and packed up and left. He never crossed the border again. He did, though, decide to call himself Basileus of the Bulgars and Romans. Romanus just laughed when he heard about this sulky behaviour. Simeon can call himself the Caliph of Baghdad if he wants to, the Emperor giggled. Simeon soon tried to take over the new kingdom of Croatia, but his armies were defeated and the great Bulgar king died in 927, aged 69, having ruled over the Bulgars for more than 30 years. The throne passed to his son Peter. Peter was a child, and thus the Bulgars ended up in that unfortunate state the Byzantine Empire had been in so recently, a regency. This state of affairs is inherently unstable, and the Bulgars knew this was not the time to be at war. Treaties were agreed, and the empire was at peace with the Bulgars. Romanus was now able to look east. Under Michael III and Basil, the empire had turned the tide against the Muslim armies and had stopped losing territory. They'd started to win more battles than they lost. For over 50 years, the eastern borders had been reasonably stable, and the imperial citizens did not fear the Arabs as much as they had. It was Romanus Lacapinus and his generals, however, who finally began to push back properly. The emperor set his sight on recapturing lost territory. As with most successful rulers, Romanus was both good at his job and lucky. At last, the empire was again producing great generals who could help the emperor in his military quests. In 923, Romanus appointed John Kirkuis as commander-in-chief of the army. This proved to be one of the most important choices of commander that the late empire would make. John Kirkuis was a brilliant commander. In 926, a war against the Arabs was started, a war which would last over 50 years and would take up Romanus and his general's thoughts for the remaining 18 years of his reign. 
The next 14 years were a time of almost continuous success. John Kakuas and his armies captured many cities which had been in Arab hands for hundreds of years. Melitene was the first major city to be captured and taken back into the empire, but another, much smaller and more minor city was taken a couple of years later. Nobody knew how important and terrible the name of that city would become to the citizens of the empire. All we need to say now is that the word Adrianople struck fear into the people for many years after Valen's defeat. In the later years of the Eastern Empire, the word Manzikert would be even more terrible. The next few years saw the Arab armies do a bit better, but the borders remained unchanged. In 940, the Emir of Mosul, who had been leading the counter-attacks, was recalled to Baghdad to deal with the crisis. The Abbasid Caliphate was on the verge of collapse. The armies of the empire had gained a lot of territory, and now the Arabs had stopped fighting back. All was stable. This was quite handy, because in 941, another menace returned. Nobody still alive could remember the massive raid by the Rus in 860, but the legend had found its way into the minds of the people. So when a huge fleet, which was said to have been so dipped the sea black, arrived from the Black Sea, everyone knew who they were. Prince Igor of Kiev was on the attack. This time, though, the empire was stronger. The Russian fleet was attacked and covered in Greek fire. The Arabs had become quite used to this terrible weapon, although they had no way of fighting it. The Russians, on the other hand, had never seen it before and were terrified. Their ships began to burn, the sea began to burn, and the Russians began to burn. The boats that survived quickly headed for land and attacked the coast of Binia, where they landed, and where the sailors plundered the towns and the cities, being especially cruel to monks. Soon, the Joas arrived with the army and pushed the Russians back towards their ships. The attackers were forced onto the boats and turned to flee, but the Imperial Navy had also arrived and was ready for them. Greek fire did its work, and the Russians were up as if they were made of matches. Very few of the Russians escaped, and those that did told the awful story to their masters in Kiev. Prince Igor tried again in 944, but this time there was no attack. Romanus agreed a peace with the Rus, a peace which was to last for many years. Eventually, the Russians would become Orthodox Christians and become friends of the Empire. When Constantinople finally fell to the Turks in the 15th century, the Russians would see themselves as continuing the traditions of the Empire. In the 1800s, the Russians would seriously consider trying to retake the city from the Ottoman Turks, the closest that Constantinople or Istanbul would ever come to being a Christian city once more. By the time of this Russian invasion, John Kirkouas was back in the east taking more land from the Arabs. The cities of Dara and Edessa became Roman again, and large parts of Mesopotamia were recaptured. John Kirkouas returned home with a sacred relic to a hero's welcome in 944. Unfortunately, the emperor was too ill to attend the ceremony, and so the three remaining co-emperors stood in for him. Christopher had died, and so Constantine Porphyrogenitus, Stephen Lecapenus and Constantine Lecapenus received the relic. It was a bit embarrassing for the Lecapeni, as the people only cheered for Constantine VII, their true emperor. Constantinople, accept your glory, they shouted, and Constantine, accept your throne. Romanus Lecapenus was now an old man, and had become very guilty about what he'd done to the true emperor. OK, he hadn't harmed him, but he had taken away his right to be the sole ruler. Not only that, he'd raised his useless sons, yep, more useless sons, to the rank of co-emperors. Romanus made up his mind what to do. 
he informed everyone that he had changed his will and that Constantine VII would be the senior emperor after his death. This was too much for the Lacapani. They weren't going to have some tired, guilty old man keep them from what they thought was theirs. First, they made Romanus get rid of the great John Kirkuis and replace him with a member of their own family. The new commander managed to get the entire army smashed to pieces a few months later. Finally, a few days before Christmas in 944, they entered the great palace and made their way to the sick emperor's bed. They picked up the old man, who hardly complained at all, took him to a waiting boat and had him packed off to a monastery. The brothers Lecapinus then went back to claim what was theirs, but they found that what they thought was theirs wasn't theirs. It wasn't even close to being theirs. What was theirs actually belonged to Constantine Porphyrogenitus. The people demanded their true emperor, son of Leo the Wise, grandson of Basil the Macedonian, and the Lecapini realised they had no choice. Constantine VII was declared senior emperor. Pretty soon he was the only emperor, and the Lecapini were, just like their father, packed off to become monks. Romanus Lecapinus had been a very good, perhaps even great, emperor. He'd taken the throne illegally, but he'd run the empire well. During his reign, it had begun to expand for the first time in many years. He was just and compassionate and not in the habit of executing people. After being deposed by his own sons, he lived on for four more years in the monastery, before dying on the 15th of June 948, aged 78. He'd spent 24 of those years as Emperor of the Romans. His body was brought back to Constantinople and buried in the church of Myrileon near the palace of the same name that he'd had built. Constantine VII was not kind about his father-in-law in his writings, once saying that Lord Romanus was a vulgar illiterate who had not been educated in the ways of the palace or the tradition of the Romans. It's understandable the true emperor would feel like that, but Romanus had done a very good job. Romanus Lecapinus was the first usurper who actually embedded himself in and then improved the reigning dynasty. As we will see in the next couple of chapters, he was not the last. There will be two more emperors who will marry into the Macedonian dynasty and take the throne from a child who was born in the purple. Both of them would manage to be even better than Romanus. So, Constantine VII was now emperor on his own. He was still only 39 years old and had a young son who was named Romanus after his grandfather. The Macedonian dynasty was secure. Constantine was a scholar, a reader and most of all a writer. He wrote about the empire and about its enemies, describing each tribe and foreign empire and what should be done with them. For example, he said that the Pechenegs were shameless in their demands for nice presents. All they do is ask for gifts, and then, when they've had enough, they demand lovely things for their wives and their parents. Constantine does say, though, that the empire should keep the peace with the Pechenegs, even if it costs a bit. Constantine wrote books on law, military strategy, history, diplomacy, medicine, farming and science. The book he is most known for is the one which he wrote for his son, the future Romanus II, which was meant to educate him in how to run an empire and how to do the right thing at the right time in all the massive number of ceremonies that an emperor was required to attend. We have seen over the last few chapters the rise of the greatest dynasty that the empire had known since the fall of Rome. Over the next three chapters, we're going to see the empire at the height of its power and glory, the greatest time since Justinian and the last time the empire would be truly great. The three men who occupied the throne from 963 to 1025 ruled over a large and rich empire which was known 
for the last time as the most powerful empire in the known world. After 1025, except for a revival under the Komnenai, it's downhill all the way. But it's not yet 963, it's 945. On the throne of the empire is a tall and powerful man who used to be a weak and sickly child. Do you remember the single aim of Constantine Porphyrogenitus over the last 30 years? Yep, what he had to do was survive. And he succeeded, he survived and he is now the sole emperor of the Roman Empire. But as we know, Constantine VII was not a soldier. He had no training in military affairs and was never really expected to rule. He was also a bit fat. It was only to be expected that he would make a terrible ruler and would bring down the great dynasty so carefully built up by his father and grandfather. He had two things going for him though. The people loved him and he already had a son named Romanus after his grandfather who would continue the dynasty. Despite not having much love for his wife's father, Constantine continued with the policies put in place by the old emperor. He made sure the people had enough land and the rich didn't get too much richer. The lives of the people of the empire were easier than they had been before the Macedonians arrived and Constantine wanted to keep it that way. The emperor ordered that all land that had been taken by powerful people from the peasants be returned. One of the rich families, though, came back into favour during Constantine's reign. He had got rid of the Lacapani, but he needed generals and leaders, so he turned back to the family that had so nearly produced an emperor before Romanus took the throne. In 953, he appointed as overall commander of the army a man who was grandson of the general who had invaded Italy for Basil, and the nephew of Leo, the man that Zoe Carbonopsina had wanted to place on the throne. Leo Focus had been blinded and had not quite made it. The new commander, Nicephorus Phocus, would finally be the first Phocus on the throne. For now though, he was appointed commander of the army, and we will see how he does in this job first. Constantine was a kind man, who, despite how he had been treated, seemed to genuinely care for his people and was never known to lose his temper. During his reign, there were virtually no rebellions and no executions. He's known for his writings and how he improved the culture and education in the empire. The emperor appointed great teachers in law, history, philosophy and other subjects to lead the teaching in universities. It's even said he would get students to come and see him and he would teach them himself. Constantine, as we know, was an expert on almost everything. Constantinople, during the time of Constantine Porphyrogenitus, became known as a fantastic place to visit for important foreigners. It was the wealthiest and most wonderful city in the known world and the emperor was a great host. In 949, a representative from the Pope, a man called Leoprand of Cremona, visited Constantinople and wrote about his time there. He talked about the first time he went into the throne room of the palace. Listen to what he wrote and remember what we heard about in an earlier chapter. In front of the emperor rose a tree of gilded bronze. The branches were full of birds made of the same stuff. The throne itself would be on the ground one minute and then rise into the air, it was guarded by golden lions, which would beat their tails on the ground and roar loudly. The birds would sing. It seems that Theophilus's golden throne room was still in full working order. Leoprand also told of fantastic meals in which fruit would be brought in solid gold bowls, which were too heavy for one man to lift. Instead, the bowls would be lowered down on ropes through openings in the ceiling onto the table. Wine would splash down the statues and columns. There were amazing magicians and balancing acts. In one act, a man balanced a pole on his head which was 24 feet long. 
a boy balanced on top of the pole. The emperor leant over to Leoprand and asked him which person was most amazing, the man balancing the pole on his head without touching it with his hands, or the boy balancing on the pole. Leoprand replied he didn't know. The emperor laughed very loudly and said that he couldn't work it out either. When Olga, a princess of Kiev, came to the capital, she was so impressed that she converted to Orthodox Christianity. Constantine Porphyrogenitus was a just and fair emperor who reigned wisely. There were no great military successes, but the empire was stable and well run. He was a good painter and a lover of art and culture. More importantly, he had brought his son up so that he would have all that he needed to be a good emperor. Constantine loved his son dearly, and even let him marry a woman he loved rather than someone chosen for him. Romanus married Theophano, an innkeeper's daughter, and in 958 they had their first son, who they named Basil after the founder of the dynasty. In 959, the emperor was on a trip in Asia when he became ill. He travelled on to Bursa, where he thought he may be able to get treatment, but the monks there told him he was dying. He rushed back to Constantinople, where he died on the 9th of November. The child, who nobody expected to live, managed to get to the age of 54, and when he died, had been Emperor of the Romans for a record-breaking 46 years. Constantine VII was dead, but he'd left his mark on his empire and its capital. During the years of Romanus Lecapanus's reign, when all he did was read and write, he produced a book about his grandfather Basil the Macedonian. It told of all the great man's victories. Once he was emperor, he decorated the column at the centre of the Hippodrome with bronze plaques showing scenes of Basil's life. The column still stands today in Istanbul, although the bronze is gone, and it's called the Column of Constantine Porphyrogenitus. Next time, we'll follow the short reign of Romanus II and then see the rise of two of the greatest generals that the Empire would ever know. Till then, have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.